Hello, my friends, and welcome to another sermon in our series, Choose Your Religion. My name is Dan Forrest, and today's episode is part four, Catholicism. Before we get into it, let's watch this really informative clip explaining the difference between Protestant heaven and Catholic heaven. Enjoy. Maud Simpson, welcome to Protestant heaven. Ruin one, hurrah! Poppy, have you seen Dash? But where's Homer and Bart? <gasps> wow, up here, that feels good! Now dance, ya heavenly gobs! My family was with me. Sorry, Marge. They're just not our sort. Well, then, I'd like to speak with Jesus. I'm afraid he's gone native. <laughs> oh, stop it! Oh, guys, I'm serious! No! Well, if you grew up in a church like I grew up in, you would easily recognize that this Simpsons clip is heresy because, according to my church, Catholics aren't going to heaven. They're going down to the bad place. Well, it wasn't until later in my life that I started to realize, well, maybe Catholics actually aren't going to hell. And then my sister started to date a Catholic, and she was thinking about converting herself, and I really started to study, and I learned a lot about Catholicism, and I learned a little that a lot of what I was taught was myths and misunderstandings. So, I'm going to do my best to present Catholicism from a Protestant's perspective today. Last week, Jonathan talked about evangelicalism, and I will probably be repeating a lot of what he said, because, as I said, Catholicism and evangelicalism are both part of Christianity. I'll give a brief history of Catholicism, and then I'll dive into the questions that Jonathan has been asking of each religion so far. So, let's just dive right into the history of Christianity. Uh, the Catholic Church would say that they were first established right in the very beginning with Jesus Christ. Jesus set up 12 of his disciples to be the leaders of the church, and they were called apostles. Catholics will say that the apostles were the first bishops of the Catholic Church. And among the 12, Jesus singled one apostle to have ultimate authority, and that's depicted in this painting here. That was Simon Peter. In Matthew 16, we read that Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter and said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. This was a play on words because the name Peter means rock. So, Peter is considered the first pope in the Catholic Church. Now, throughout history, the Catholic Church has had many bishops who were consecrated by former bishops, thus continuing the line of the apostles and among these bishops, one is elected to be Pope after the former Pope has left their position, usually because they've died. So there have been a lot, uh, there have been a long traditions of bishops in the Catholic Church who oversaw uh, the churches in different areas, along with priests that they appointed to oversee local congregations. 
but there's supposed to be only one pope at a time, and the Catholic Church traces their popes all the way back to Peter. I will say, though, that there is debate as to whether the church really governed by one pope in the first couple centuries. Uh, Many scholars believe that the early church consisted of multiple bishops who worked together to make decisions and lead the church as a group and not by one individual. It wasn't really until the mid-2nd century that we know for sure a single bishop was given ultimate authority, but even then, that was only in Rome, and it was not necessarily considered the ultimate authority by the churches in Greece or in countries in Africa or other parts of Europe. In any case, the early church universally renounced all pagan gods, and that got them into a lot of trouble. Because they refused to participate in pagan festivals, they were seen by other citizens and the government as enemies of the state. Because by not participating, they were angering the gods and therefore threatening the peace and well-being of the city. So, Christians were heavily persecuted until the next important date in Catholic history, 313, when Constantine, a Christian, became emperor of the Roman Empire and he legalized Christianity. Well, as the church grew and expanded these first 300 years, differences in theology and practice were debated and they caused divisions and fights, but certain doctrines and rituals were being formalized as the true way of the church. And with Christianity now legal in 313, there came a whole host of blessings, but also some curses. Uh, The blessings included an end to persecution and also the opportunity to really solidify the teachings and the practices of the church to create unity among all the different churches that were spread out among the Roman Empire. The first ecumenical council happened in 313, and there were seven councils altogether that formalized the church's teachings on things like the Trinity, the nature and divinity of Jesus, and and things like when to celebrate Easter, and just dealing with different disagreements that were happening among the churches. So there were blessings to being a legal religion, but there were also some really big curses in that now Catholicism was united with the Roman Empire. And with that came major ethical dilemmas regarding wealth, regarding power, wars, conquering other countries through crusades, and so on. And because Christianity was the state religion, Conversion was forced on all citizens, and it was forced on other countries that were conquered, quite different from evangelicalism. Well, Christianity mixed with government has always been a problematic relationship, as we've seen in Catholic history throughout the centuries, and even maybe with evangelicalism now in the States, we're starting to see a bit of that as well. So even though Catholicism traces its roots all the way back to Jesus and Peter, I would argue that Catholicism really became Catholicism like we know it today in the 10th and 11th centuries when it split from the Eastern Orthodox Church. Up until this time, all the different Christian churches were more or less in unity together, but slowly the Roman Catholics were distancing themselves from the other churches And in 1054, there was a major split over church practices, over theological differences, and especially over the authority of the Pope. The other churches, they rejected the Pope as their ultimate authority, 
But the Catholic Church then said, well, you're out. You're not the true church. We're the true church. And so there was a major split. And it's kind of funny because today, the Eastern Orthodox Church, they trace their lineage all the way back to Peter as well. And they say they're the true church, whereas Catholics say, no, we're the true church. I'll let you guys decide. Well, the next big break that happened in the Catholic Church happened 500 years after that in 1517, when a priest named Martin Luther disagreed with some of the church's practices, and this all sparked the Protestant Reformation, which would birth over time hundreds of different denominations that all disagreed with Catholicism, rejecting many of the rituals and developing their own doctrines and practices. And in response to the Protestant Reformation, the Catholics, unfortunately, violently fought back. But they also started a reformation of their own, and they worked to correct the corruption that had developed in the church. And even to this day, the Catholic Church has worked to be a more faithful church, and has even done a lot of work to repair the damage of centuries past by reconciling with the different Christian denominations and also working to reconcile with other religions as well. So the Catholic Church today is a lot different than it was in 1517 when Martin Luther and the others split off from the Catholic Church. Okay, so that is some history. Now let's get to the questions. What is the problem with the world today metaphysically, and why is it happening? So the problem for Catholicism is the same as evangelicalism, sin. Sin is disobeying God and anything that is apart from God. The first humans, Adam and Eve, sinned when they disobeyed God. And all humanity, according to the Catholics, are now stained with original sin. We now have a propensity to keep sinning. We live with suffering, ignorance, and discontent. And our lives are going to end in death. And as we're in this state without grace... That means that we are living a life without union with God, and there is no promise of heaven. Second question, what is the existential and metaphysical narrative of Catholicism? Well, once again, it's the same as evangelicalism. God created the world to be good, but humans sinned and plunged us into a world of sin. Through the different covenants of the Old Testament that God made with Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, God mapped out a plan for the salvation of the human race from sin and death. And that plan reached its fulfillment with the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Jesus is fully God and fully human, and thus able to atone for all of our sins. Atonement is a fancy word that refers to the repayment of our sins, as well as our reunion with God, being made at one with God again. Only a person who was truly divine, human, and innocent could make such an effective sacrifice on the behalf of all humanity. And this sacrifice of divine love utterly revokes the offense of all sins and bears the pain and cost of sin in itself. One day, Jesus will come again at the end of time and everyone will be resurrected. We will all be judged and either welcomed into heaven or condemned to hell based on our standing with God. So where are we all headed without the mentioned religion? Well, those who God judges to be outside his grace will go to hell, a place of punishment and separation from God. And it's the choice of evil and lack of repentance that leads to this 
justified damnation. But where should we be going? Well, heaven will be our home in the new creation, living eternally in the presence of God, united with him and other believers. Heaven is a place with no more suffering, no more sin, no more death. Now, one of the myths that I believed about Catholicism is that purgatory is a way for sinners to escape hell and gain access into heaven. But that's actually not true. Those in Catholicism who go to hell cannot get out. They are there for eternity. But if you die and you're judged to be in good favor with God, in God's grace, then you're either going to go directly to heaven. But that's quite rare. Those that go straight to heaven have more or less dealt with all their sins on earth and uh, are instantly saints. Like if you think of St. Peter, St. Augustine, St. Francis of Assisi, the Catholic Church believes that those uh, people uh, pretty much dealt with all their sin in life. So when they died, they instantly went to heaven. But most Christians, unfortunately, don't get to pass go and receive $200. They have to go through purgatory first. Purgatory is the place where all Christians are fully purified from our sins and the consequences of the sins are repaired. Because heaven is sinless, we need to be purified and set right before we can live there. And Protestants and evangelicals actually believe in purgatory. You might not have known that, but we believe it is instantaneous. At the judgment, when Jesus declares us righteous, he will instantly purge us of our sins. But Catholics believe the process is not instantaneous. It will actually take time and effort depending on the severity of our sins. And even though Catholics believe that Jesus paid the price for our sin, we are still called to participate in the purging process in purgatory. Okay, so how do we get to heaven in the present? Well, Catholics believe in seven sacraments that are signs established by Jesus that cause what they signify. So the sacraments, they heal us from sin and they plant, nourish, or restore the life of grace within us. So these sacraments, they put Catholics in good standing with God. And the more they practice them in this life, the quicker they'll pass through purgatory and into heaven. So like I said, with the saints, St. Peter, St. Augustine, St. Francis, others, other saints, they believe that they've uh, done the sacraments enough and, and been a, a part of their um, purging on earth enough so that they don't have to go through purgatory. Well, like I said, there are seven sacraments, but I'm actually only going to talk briefly about four of them because those are probably the ones that are most common to um, the everyday lay person. First one I want to talk about is baptism. Baptism is how anyone becomes a Christian. It frees us from original sin. It makes us children of God. It makes us temples of the Holy Spirit and members of the church. Evangelicals tend to say that we become Christians when we pray the sinner's prayer, when we ask Jesus into our heart. But for Catholics, the first step is actually baptism. And those born into Catholic families are baptized as infants, something that evangelicals tend to not practice. Some Protestants do practice it, like the Lutherans and the Anglicans. Uh, but for our denominations, uh, we tend to believe in a baptism for people who are older and can understand what they're doing. Uh, we call that believer's baptism. But those in the Catholic family, uh, they will baptize their infants. And 
those who are converting to Catholicism, they can also get baptized when they're older. It doesn't have to be when you're an infant. Uh, the second sacrament that I want to talk about is confirmation. Confirmation is a sacrament that, later in that happens later in life when the Catholic renews their baptismal promises and then gets anointed by the priest, sealing them with the gift of the Holy Spirit and empowering them with spiritual gifts. And it's kind of interesting because we tend to think in the evangelical world of when we get baptized, that's like confirmation. That's when we publicly declare um, our baptismal promises, and that's when we believe the Holy Spirit comes on us and we are empowered with spiritual gifts. But not all evangelicals even agree about that as well. So let's just move on from there. Third one that I want to talk about is communion, or the Eucharist, as Catholics typically call it. Uh, communion is a regular participation in the sacrifice of Jesus. Catholics believe that the bread and wine become the literal body and blood of Jesus. And when they take communion, they are consuming his life, becoming like him and having him dwell within them. Communion also gives them strength to follow Jesus in life, and it provides hope and promise that they too will experience the resurrection of Christ. The fourth sacrament that I want to talk about is confession. Confession is an ongoing sacrament that absolves Catholics of sins after their baptism. Evangelicals really struggle with the concept of going to a priest to have our sins forgiven rather than praying directly to Jesus. You know, if I want my sins forgiven, I'm just going to pray to Jesus. Why do I need to go to a priest? But Catholics would actually say that Jesus gave the apostles the authority to forgive sins in this passage from John 20, when he said, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. And because priests and bishops are successors to the apostles, they too have the authority to forgive. Well, there's also some um, advantages to going to confession that I wish we actually had in evangelicalism. Confession isn't Public confession isn't really a, a regular thing that we practice. For me, when I ask Jesus to forgive my sins, I often still feel guilty afterwards. I'm not sure about you, but I find that it would be more powerful if I had a person audibly say to me, Dan, you are forgiven. And that's what Catholics receive when they go to confession. The priest says to them, you are forgiven. Also, when we confess our sins in private, we often fall back into the same patterns of sin. And that's because we have no guidance or accountability from someone else. We're just praying on our own. But when Catholics confess to a priest, the priest can give them direction and encouragement to avoid those sins in the future. So those are just a few of the ways that Catholics believe we are made right before God and prepared for entrance into heaven after death. A few other sacraments are um, holy orders, which is what happens with the priests. Um, and then the other one is anointing of the sick. So that's uh, anointing someone who's very sick or near death. And finally, marriage is also a sacrament, which is quite interesting. Um, but I'm not going to talk about that today. All right. Next question. What guides uh, the Catholic's moral and ethical compass to get to heaven? Well, like evangelicals, the Bible is a moral and ethical compass. It is the written revelation of God to this world. But unlike evangelicals, Catholics also regard tradition and the teachings of the Pope and the church as revealed truth as well. They believe that not all revelation of truth was written down. Some was passed on only in spoken words and deeds from Jesus and the disciples. And while this is disturbing to evangelicals, 
Even Jonathan pointed out last week that while we say the Bible is central to our lives, we don't all agree on the interpretation of it. And Catholics would say how we interpret the Bible is just as important as the Bible. And the way we interpret has been passed on in the traditions and the teachings of the church. And Catholics will also point out that the only reason that we have the Bible in the first place is because of tradition and the teachings of the church. They preserved the books of the Bible, they assembled the books of the Bible, and uh, they teach how to interpret it. It's interesting to note that Catholics actually have more books in their Bible. I don't know if you know that. Uh, We actually have less in our Bible because Martin Luther contested some of their choices and uh, some of our, our Bibles don't have the extra books that the Catholics have. Well, because Catholics also rely on tradition and teachings of the church, they also have some beliefs that evangelicals really struggle with. They have a very high view of Mary. They call her the mother of God, and they call her the mother of the church. But they're quick to point out that they don't worship Mary as God. They just hold her in the highest honor and respect. But many evangelicals struggle with that. They think that um, there's some um, worship, there is some worship going on. Um, it's, it's, it really is debatable. Catholics also believe in praying to Mary and praying to the saints. And once again, evangelicals will say, well, you know, why would you pray to Mary? Why would you pray to the saints when you can pray directly to Jesus? You don't need to go through these other people. But don't we often ask our friends and our pastor and others to pray for us when things are tough? We go on a prayer chain and we ask people around us, our closest friends, to to pray on our behalf for us. So if we believe that Mary and the saints are alive in heaven right now, can't we also pray to them to pray on our behalf to Jesus? Doesn't seem like too much of a stretch in my opinion, although I don't do it, but I understand where they're getting it from. (laughs) And also, according to Catholics, uh, we can pray to the saints Four different things because God has given them authority and the ability to perform different miracles. So Catholics will often pray to St. Christopher, for example, for protection when they travel because they believe the Holy Spirit has gifted St. Christopher with the power to protect people when they're traveling. Now that sounds strange to us evangelicals, But you know, it's actually not that different from some evangelical Christians who will travel to go and see a faith healer and they will ask the faith healer to heal them and to hopefully cure their sickness. Um, Why would they travel all that way to go to a faith healer when they could just pray to Jesus? It's because we recognize that God has gifted different people in the church with different spiritual gifts and some people he's gifted uh, the gift of healing. And so... um, much the same way that uh, we would go to a faith healer for healing, we might also pray to the saints who have different powers and abilities based on what the Holy Spirit has gifted them. Once again, not something I really embrace, but I can understand where the Catholics are coming from. Well, these are just a few examples of how Catholics blend the Bible with tradition and the teachings of the church to be their moral and ethical compass. Okay, final question. Is there life after death? If yes, what is it? You know, I've already answered this question, heaven, hell, purgatory. So we're just going to move on, wrap up this sermon. 
Since we're exploring these religions as a Christian, we finally need to ask the question, how does what I've learned about this religion inform my Christian religion and my faith in Jesus? Well, like I said earlier, I believe Catholics are our brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't believe they're heretics. Maybe there are among the Catholic Church some who are heretics. I'm not the one to judge, uh, but I think that... Uh, um, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I so I believe that they have a lot to inform our understanding of Christianity and our faith in Jesus. Especially when you consider that the Catholic Church, along with the Orthodox Church, were the only church for like 1,500 years. You know, you can't just say that they're all heretics and they can't be trusted. They were the church for 1,500 years. Catholics preserved the Bible. They passed on the rich traditions of Jesus and the early church for hundreds of years in the face of great opposition held on to their faith on our behalf. We can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. We should carefully consider what value the Catholic Church still has for our faith today. While I don't hold on to the sacraments as dogmatically as the Catholics do, I do think that there is a value in the seriousness that they give to the practices passed on to us by Jesus. In the early church, baptism was the first step in becoming a Christian. But as I said earlier, most evangelicals have made the sinner's prayer the first step. And unfortunately, I think the sinner's prayer is highly individualistic, and it doesn't typically involve a welcoming from a community of faith. And then there's also a hesitancy for Christians today to get baptized because they're not sure they're ready, even though in the Bible, the early Christians all got baptized immediately. There was no waiting. Um, I question whether we should be placing so much emphasis on getting people to say the sinner's prayer when that's actually not a practice that was passed on by Jesus. Oddly enough, the sinner's prayer is not found in the Bible, and it's a tradition that was made up in the 18th, 19th century and yet we criticize Catholics for their non-biblical traditions. Why do we hold on to this tradition like it's biblical when it's not? Also, let's take a look at communion. We tend to think of communion as a remembrance that Jesus died for us and paid for the price of our sin. But how often do we think of it in the deep, rich terms that the Catholics think of it? as? For example, they think of it as spiritual food that nourishes us for our daily life of following Jesus. They also see communion as a sign that Jesus is dwelling in us, transforming us on the inside to be more like him. I think that evangelicals have lost actually some of the power and the meaning of communion when we walked away from the Catholic understanding. And finally, I think that there's a great value in the sacrament of confession that we as evangelicals are greatly missing. The Bible says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. But how often do we confess our sins out loud to others? We tend to keep it private between us and God. But as I said earlier, then we lose out on the powerful human experience of actually hearing the words, you are forgiven. And we lose out on the accountability, encouragement, and guidance that we could be receiving from other Christians. This verse is telling us that confessing our sins to each other and praying for each other actually brings healing to our lives and our souls. So if we're not confessing to each other, 
that means that we're probably missing out on healing that God wants to give us through public confession. So one of the things that I've done as a pastor is I've often tried to encourage confession to happen in small groups. I've encouraged people to find accountability partners or close Christian friends that they can walk with and confide in and share their struggles so that they have someone to say on behalf of Christ, you're forgiven, and so that they have someone who can uh, give them some encouragement, direction, hope, and accountability as they try to move forward as best as they can away from the sinful life. Well, these are not the only valuable things in Catholicism that evangelicals have abandoned. Uh, so I want to encourage you to just do more reading and research on your own to discover the wealth and the depth of Catholic theology and practice. I think there's a lot of good in there. I think there's a lot to stay away from, but there's some good stuff in there. Well, that's all for today. And blessings on you as you consider your faith in the light of Catholicism. And I hope that you have some good discussions in your breakout rooms this Sunday. Goodbye.